Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome to the sixth Walter Stibbs lecture, 2019, um, and it's to be delivered by Dame Jocelyn Bell Burnell. So this event is supported by the, the Stibbs bequest the Physics Foundation and the School of Physics and Sydney Ideas. And my name is Anne Green and I'm president of the Physics Foundation. But before we begin proceedings, I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It's upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is located. And as we share this knowledge within the university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever in the Aboriginal custodianship of country. So this lecture series is made possible thanks to a very generous donation to the School of Physics Astronomy Group from Margaret Stibbs. And Margaret Stibbs made this donation in memory of her husband and to acknowledge a family association with the University of Sydney that goes back to the 1880s. And it is a huge pleasure that we welcome Helen Stibbs, their daughter here tonight. So welcome, Helen. So Professor Walter Stibbs was a distinguished international researcher, best known for his contributions to stellar astrophysics, for his global scientific leadership, and for his outstanding record of mentoring students and young researchers. He was born on the 17th of February, 1919. Keep that date in mind. And Professor Stibbs was a graduate of the School of Physics at the University of Sydney here, receiving the University Medal in 1942 and an MSc in 1943. He then went to Oxford and received a DPhil and was appointed Head of Astronomy at the University of St Andrews, Edinburgh, uh, Scotland, in 1959. And that was a post he held for 30 years and served with great distinction. Almost all of his professional life was spent overseas. However, his early career was spent at Mount Stromlo and also at Armadale. As an academic, he was very well loved as an inspirational teacher. He was also an active contributor to the discipline of astronomy. So he was holding senior administrative positions in associations, including the Royal Astronomical Society and the Royal Society of Edinburgh. He was a fellow of both of those associations. So he leaves an enduring legacy as an outstanding scientist, but also as an inspired educator. So beyond academia, Professor Stibbs was also a very gifted athlete. He was a cyclist, a marathon runner, and he won a gold medal at the 1991 Australian Veterans Games. Hard to say. His most highly cited research contribution is arguably his paper on magnetic variable stars, which links very nicely with tonight's lecturer. Dame Jocelyn Bell Burnell is one of the greatest astrophysicists and role models of our time. She's best known as the discoverer of pulsars, which are detected as variable magnetic stars. You see the link. Not the same variety that Walter Stibbs worked on, but it is a nice link. So both astronomers were also fellows of the Royal Astronomical Society and also the Royal Society in Edinburgh. So Jocelyn is Dame Commander Order of the British Empire and has been awarded countless many distinctions, honours and prizes. And most recently, the Special Breakthrough Prize for Fundamental Physics, and that was awarded last year. 
But to just go back a little bit, she was a PhD student at Cambridge, and that was where she made her amazing discovery of radio pulsars. This discovery was recognised by the Nobel Prize in 1974. And I grind my teeth because Jocelyn was not included in the award and that caused a great deal of controversy and anger still. But tonight she will tell her story of the discovery and its significance. But let me tell you a little bit more about Jocelyn. She held positions at several universities, including Southampton, Bath and Princeton, and several observatories, so the Royal Observatory Edinburgh and Mauna Kea in Hawaii. She was president of the Royal Astronomical Society, as well as being the first female president of the Institute of Physics and the Royal Society Edinburgh. So as well as being awarded all these many prestigious prizes and medals across many countries, the UK, the US, Australia and France, Jocelyn has become an exceptional role model for women scientists. And evidence of this is that she was fun, absolutely fundamental in establishing the Athena Swan program in the UK, which we have now translated to the SAGE program in Australia. And with her most recent award, $3 million, she has donated all the funds to support women, minority and refugee students so they can become physics researchers. Without further ado, we are truly privileged, privileged to hear from this great astrophysicist, Dame Jocelyn Bell. Thank you very much for that generous introduction. Thank you also to all the organisations who have supported this event and made my presence here possible. And thank you to all of you for turning out on a winter's night to be here. I'm proposing to tell, I hope not too long, the story of the discovery of pulsars, say a little bit about what pulsars are, talk about some near misses. I'll explain what I mean by that when I get there. And finally, just a little bit about what I think were the factors in the discovery happening when and where it happened. We're going to be talking radio astronomy. This slide covers the whole of the electromagnetic spectrum. This is the little bit that our eyes respond to, the optical or visible. Out the violet end of that, there's ultraviolet, then there are X-rays, then there are gamma rays. Out the red end, there's infrared, and then there's millimeter wave and radio wave astronomy. And we now know that stars and galaxies emit right across these bands. This is a relatively new discovery, mostly post-World War II, because World War II enabled some new technologies, including radio astronomy and including rockets to launch satellites. You do X-ray astronomy, for instance, from satellites. You can do radio astronomy on the ground, but we use the radar technology, particularly the radar receiver technology, to pick up the radio waves from stars and galaxies. Um, some of you may have heard of gravitational radiation, which is a very new discovery just a few years ago. That is a totally different spectrum. So it's a wonderful discovery because it is opening up a whole new window on the universe. So radio astronomy. This is the Parkes Radio Telescope inland from here at Narrabri. No. Parks, yeah, parks at parks. And this is the big one in Britain, Jodrell Bank. 
This has just been awarded UNESCO World Heritage status just under a week ago um, to the dismay of the university's vice chancellor because the financial implications are <laughs> tough, although the cachet is great. So these were two of the earliest radio telescopes with dishes. But actually, the radio telescope I'm going to talk about is rather more primitive. It's wires and posts and things like that. But these are the really photogenic ones. So radio astronomy developed post-World War II. In particular, it was people who had worked in radar. They realized that they could use their radar receiving equipment, not the transmitting, but the receiving equipment, to see if they could pick up radio waves from the sky. Uh, there had been some evidence during the war that the sun emitted radio waves. The Japanese were aware of something blocking their signals. Um, apparently, they didn't know what it was. It was low in the east in the morning. High, <laughs> Japan is northern hemisphere, so it's high in the south in the middle of the day and low in the west in the evening. And they apparently didn't twig what it was. <laughs> But there was certainly evidence that things up there in the sky, stars and galaxies, emitted radio waves. And so, end of World War II, these radar buffins, as they were known then, started using the radio receivers. And they found there were a lot of things that they could pick up radio signals from. And so, the radio detectors and telescopes got better and better. Some of the brightest things were a bit of a puzzle. They got their colleagues, the optical astronomers, they'd say, there's something sending out a lot of radio waves from there. What do you, my optical colleague, see? And the colleague would turn his telescope to there and he says, well, there's a sort of star-like thing. It's not a regular star. I don't quite understand what it is, but it's star-like. And these things became known as quasi-stellar radio sources or quasar for short. They got optical spectra of some of these. They couldn't understand the optical spectra for a long time. And then two scientists in Caltech suddenly realized that the spectrum was understandable if these were very, very distant objects and taking part in the expansion of the universe. But they're very strong and they're very distant. Usually very distant things are very faint and it's the nearby ones that are strong. So this was a significant puzzle for them initially. Now, just a little bit of my background, because I think this is important to the story. Um, I started life in the north of Ireland. I had some of my secondary education in the north of England. I did my first degree in Glasgow. I had decided before I left school that I wanted to be a radio astronomer. And the obvious place in Britain to go was Jodrell Bank. I've just shown you the big radio telescope there. But uh, I applied and didn't get a warm reception. Didn't get any reception. I thought, ah, this is not going to work. I suspect I'm going to Sydney, Australia, to do my PhD. Now, Britain and Australia their academic years start at different time of year. So I'm in the British summer this time of year. And 
I know that the academic year here doesn't start till January or February. I have a few months in hand. I won't get into Cambridge, but I'd better put in an application just in case, because I've got some months to spare. I put in the application and very much to my surprise, found myself way in the deep south down here at Cambridge. I'd never been that far south before. <laughs> I'm from the rugged north and west. You can find all these things on an atlas, but what you won't find on an atlas <laughs> and when I turned up at Cambridge, which is away down here, I really did feel like a heathen from the, the heathen from the highlands or something like that. It was really, really daunting. I now know that what I was feeling has a label called imposter syndrome. Have people here heard of imposter syndrome? Yeah, okay. We didn't name it in Britain then, um, but I turn up in Cambridge to start my PhD and everybody's terribly clever and quite keen to let you know it. <laughs> I'm not. I'm sure they've made a mistake admitting me. I'm sure they're going to discover their mistake and throw me out. But... Unlike classical cases of imposter syndrome, which say I'd better leave before they throw me out, I decided on a different course of action. I said, I will work my very hardest so that when they throw me out, I won't have a guilty conscience. I know I've done my best and I just wasn't bright enough for Cambridge. I wish I'd known this quote when I turned up in Cambridge. It's actually said of cosmologists, but frequently in error, but never in doubt. Um, I'm not quite sure whether it was the Russian Zeldovich who said it, or maybe it was Landau, but it's a brilliant quote. You maybe find it useful sometime. My dismay was further increased on my first day in Cambridge when I got given a set of tools. These are they. These are not microelectronics tools. These are big wire working tools. I still have them. These are actually the literal tools. Um, and they're good quality tools. They've, they've lasted a few years. My first job was to build a radio telescope, to be one of a group of five or six people building a radio telescope. My particular job was all the connectors, all the plugs and sockets on the ends of cables and some other connections as well. This is near the end of the business. Um, we're working with some very expensive low loss airspace cable that you cannot coil up and take indoors. You're not allowed to coil it up. And I worked through the Cambridge winter. There's this little hut. And there's another one, it's about there. And the cable stretched from there to here. And I worked in whichever hut it was to put the plugs on the cables, plugs and sockets. And we've done them. And I'm now help, being helped by my technician, Don, to check that the connections are good. I'm testing the impedance. This is a slotted waveguide for those who are working in the area. Uh, and you're literally working in the field. 
It gets a lot colder in Cambridge in winter than it does here, I can tell you. It was perishing. We were building a large radio telescope. Its area was equivalent to 57 tennis courts. The grant that my supervisor, Tony Hirsch, had got was £12,000, which at that time would have bought starter homes for three young married couples, just to give you a feel. In terms of grants for science projects, that's on the modest side, but we don't advertise this too much. And there were six of us working for two years to build the radio telescope. This is the finished product. It looks homemade. It is homemade. Uh, and the most obvious thing are the wooden posts. There's over a thousand of them. Um, their sole purpose is to keep the electrics out of the wet grass, because wet grass is an electrical short. Um, there's lots of copper antennae. You can see the nice bluey oxidized copper. Um, and there's over 120 miles of wire and cable in that telescope. Um, for those of us who are physicists, um, it's an interferometer. It's phased. You can um, put delays in between the different rows. And at that point, Cambridge were still using valves, vacuum tubes. I'd used transistors in my project as an undergraduate in Glasgow. Came to Cambridge and said, you're using valves? Why not transistors? Whoa, transistors, unreliable. Whoa, transistors, noisy. Whoa, transistors, expensive. We use valves. They did ultimately change. And the valve receivers worked okay. After the two years, the telescope was built and the other four or five people who'd been working on it melted away to other projects. And I was left to make sure it was running, running properly, and to use it for its first observations. Now, what are we trying to do? We're looking for quasars, these quasi-stellar radio sources, these very, very distant things, of which we know about 20. And even though we know 20, they're still a puzzle. They're incredibly bright and incredibly distant, and we're discovering incredibly compact. Still don't know what they are. Because they're compact, they have a phenomenon that helps us pick them out from other radio sources. It's called scintillation. And this picture is meant to explain what's going on. There's a radio telescope here on the ground. The sun is somewhere off to the wind, off to the left. And coming out of the sun is a wind blowing out, actually blowing out in every direction. But we're interested in this bit. The wind's not perfectly smooth. It's got kind of clouds in it, clouds with extra electrons. And a radio wave from a distant quasar has to come through this cloudy patch. And the net result is that the radio wave gets spread out a bit. And as the clouds come and go, sometimes you see the quasar between the cloud. And sometimes the cloud is busy sending the wave, radio waves every what way. And the quasar looks dimmer. So if you're monitoring the signal you pick up, it bounces up and down like this. So this is where they're seeing it through a gap in the clouds. And this is where there are clouds in the way. 
and you see there's lots and lots of sort of jitter. That's a time scale of one second. The other main radio objects that we were finding were big radio galaxies, and they were so broad that you were seeing them through several clouds and several gaps, and the clouds blowing by didn't produce the same amount of bouncing up and down. So you look for objects from radio signals from objects that bounce up and down like that, and it's something compact, probably a quasar. But to follow this kind of fluctuation, that's one second, um, you need short observations, lots of short observations. So we're working with actually a tenth of a second. A rough analogy to this twinkling business is sometimes you've seen on a swimming pool these bright lights, lines. They're, they're called caustics. They're not completely analogous to what I'm talking about. But if you imagine being on the bottom of a swimming pool, looking up as the wind blows this pattern past, you see bright and dimmer and bright and dimmer and bright and dimmer. It's, it's a bit like that in the radio with a quasar. As I said, there were at that time only about 20 quasars known. And we really needed rather more to try and understand what these things were, to, to crack the problem. And so the purpose of my project is to use this new radio telescope to look for radio objects that go in brightness, and that's a quasar. So you're finding quasars by looking for rapidly fluctuating things. Um, for those who like the techie details, we're using an observing, uh, observing time constant of a tenth of a second. Uh, I used that telescope for its first six months. And as well as the pulsars, I found about 180 more quasars. So it took the sample from 20 to about 200, which is a good, healthy sample for doing science with. At that time, the University of Cambridge had one computer, the whole university. It had less memory than your laptop, and it will have occupied a room that's probably about the third the size of this room was full of vacuum tubes. Because it had such small memory, very few academics got time on it. And my supervisor didn't. Unlike the other academics who didn't get access to it, they had grad students instead of computer access. And we got the data coming out on these wide chart recorders. There's actually three pen traces but you can only in this photograph see the middle one, and that's the one that I used most anyway. Uh, we had four pen recorders running at a time. There was 30 meters of paper per day, and I ran the project for six months, so I had five and a bit kilometers of paper by the end of the first six months. Now, I was being very, very careful partly because of imposter syndrome, but partly because I'm the first person to use this telescope. I want to make sure it's operating as it ought to, and I'm checking out all the funny anomalies and generally getting used to how it behaves. And just occasionally, there was a funny little signal like that. Quasars look different. Quasars would be stronger. 
and the signal would go up and down and it would last a lot longer. But a big telescope like that can pick up radio interference and there was quite a bit in those days. Badly suppressed cars, motorbikes, anything that sparked, thermostats, things like that, arc welders, uh, sparking power lines, all sorts of things. This is a little bit of low-level interference. Normally, the interference is from end stop to end stop. And the first few times I saw this, I logged it with a question mark. This is actually the first one, and it's, this slide's put together with hindsight. People near the front can probably see that that signal looks different from this signal. Uh, on this one, the spikes go up and down. Here they go mainly up. On this one, you can see chart paper between the spikes. Here you can't. Uh, for any students in the audience, when you do that kind of analysis, you're actually doing Fourier analysis. You're talking about the frequencies present. So these are lower frequencies. You can see space between the spikes. And you're talking about the amplitudes of the frequencies. So here they're mostly of one sign, here they're two signs. The first few times I saw this, I logged it with a question mark. It often wasn't there. Quite often you'd look at this bit of sky and around here you'd just have this normal receiver noise. But I think our brain stores problems, or maybe that's a physicist speaking. Certainly, I remember as a physics student, there were sometimes bits of physics that I didn't understand. I didn't have time to understand it properly before the exam. So you'd learn it parrot fashion for the exam, but all the while saying, I must go back and look at that sometime when I've got time and really work at it. This signal, although I logged it with a question mark, at some level it lodged in the back of my brain. And on about the mm, sixth, seventh, eighth occurrence, no, fifth or sixth occurrence, my brain said, you've seen something like this before, haven't you? You've seen something like this before from this bit of the sky, haven't you? And then it's easy. Because I have all these long rolls of paper. Each represents one strip of the sky and I store them in shoeboxes according to which strip of the sky they are. So this is probably declination 30. I go find the declination 30 box. I get out all the previous strips. I need lots of floor space. This would be absolutely splendid. And you spread out the charts and you line them up so that the time is the same everywhere. And you find this little bit, 19 hours, 20 minutes, right ascension. Well, it wasn't there, it wasn't there. Yeah, it might be there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, I logged that one with a question mark. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there. And here. And they're all the same time. They're all from the same bit of sky. They're often not there. When they're there, they're from the same bit of sky. And that's a vital step. It was a very small signal. I reckon that uh, it occupied about 10 parts in a million of the chart paper. That shows you how sick I was. 
uh, I showed this to my supervisor. He said, yeah, great, but that's five millimeters. We can't really see what's going on. We need an enlargement. And with chart recorders, it's very easy to get an enlargement. You make the paper go faster under the pen and it all gets spread out. So we just use a faster chart speed. Now, chart recorder runs out of paper in 20 minutes. Guess who lives at the observatory putting a fresh roll in every 20 minutes? Next best idea, the student goes out to the observatory at this point, switches to high speed, switches back to normal speed at this point. And for a month, I went out to the observatory every day at the right time, switched to high speed. And the thing, whatever it was, wasn't there. So I was making high-speed recordings of receiver noise. And my thesis advisor was furious. Oh, it's a flare star. It's been and gone and done it, and you've missed it. It's always the grad student's fault. And basically, they're there for kicking. So I went very diligently out to the observatory every day in November, except for one day when it was an interesting lecture in Cambridge, actually on aging, um, which has somehow become more relevant and was very interesting. And when I went out to the observatory the next day for the routine check, it had reappeared and I hadn't been there. And I didn't dare leave. I stayed on till. It was the appropriate time, switch the high-speed recording. And bless me, but in comes this signal. Ignore the label, that's done retrospectively. Um, hint of a pulse, hint of a pulse, mm -mm. pulse, 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 missing, pulse, 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 missing, 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 back on cue. Even when the signal goes missing, it keeps the beat. Well, I'd never seen anything like that. I phoned my thesis advisor, who was in Cambridge teaching in an undergraduate laboratory, probably dealing with some twit of a Cambridge student, and there are some, you know, who says, oh, my diffraction grating has one line per inch. That's a physics joke, don't worry if you don't understand it. <laughs> and then this twit of a grad student phones up and says, hey, Tony, you know that funny signal? It's a string of pulses one and a third seconds apart. And Tony's reaction is, uh, must be man-made. Looks artificial. I wasn't convinced, but I couldn't marshal the argument fast enough for that phone call because I wasn't expecting it. I've been tracking this thing now for several months and it keeps its position amongst the stars, which means it comes back every 23 hours, 56 minutes. The stars get four minutes earlier every day. That's why winter constellations are different from summer constellations. This thing was coming back four minutes earlier each day, albeit it was invisible on many of those days. But when it did come back, it was keeping on this 23-hour, 56-minute day. There aren't many men making man-made signals that keep a 23-hour, 56-minute day. <laughs> Anyway, Tony came out to the observatory the next day at the appropriate time, stood looking over my shoulder, and this really was a make or break point. And fortunately, it reappeared, and he saw it with his own eyes. And uh, we very quickly established that the pulse separation the second day was the same as the first day. 
And that started a tough, interesting, crazy period. I continued observing this thing. We were looking to see if the separation of the pulses did keep constant or if there was any sign of change. We were trying to work out what the hell it was from because we'd not seen anything like that ever before. But it couldn't be radio interference. We got a colleague who had, and his grad student, who had another radio telescope on the same observatory site working at the same frequency to see if they could see it. They could. But it was really puzzling. We very quickly established that it kept this very accurate pulse period. That means it's big. It's got big energy reserves. It's not getting tired. It's keeping going. It's fit. But because the pulses are short, it's small. So it's small and it's big. It's small and it's big. We now understand that we're comparing two slightly different things. It's big in terms of energy reserves. It's not getting tired. That probably means it's big in mass. But it's small, the short pulses, means it's small in size. So it's small in size, but very heavy. Hindsight's great. A colleague managed to get an estimate of how far away the thing was using a technique called dispersion, which I won't go into. Um, his estimate was about 200 light years away, which puts it way beyond the solar system, but well within our galaxy. Tony was still wondering about artificial little green men. Little green men. <laughs> but this has been doctored afterwards. When you find the first one of something, you don't call it little green men one. You call it little green men. It's when you find more that you go back and number the first one, number one. So it just proves that that wasn't originally on the chart paper. So could it be little green men? Well, Tony argued that if it was little green men, they probably lived on a planet which went round their sun. And as the planet is coming towards us, the pulses pile up on each other, the spacing between them slightly smaller. And if this is their sun and I'm the little green men, and as they're moving away from you, the pulses get a bit more spread out. So. I continued doing these observations to get the pulse period as accurately as we could to see if there was any sign of it orbiting. And we found some signs of orbiting. But this is Doppler effect for any physicists in the audience. Doppler effect can be caused by motion of the observer as well as motion of the source. So this table is now the sun and I'm on the earth. And some of the time, the Earth is moving towards you, the sky, and any pulses coming from you pile up closer together. And when the Earth is moving away from that bit of sky, the pulses stretch out. And that was the Doppler shift we found. So we proved that the Earth went round the sun. <laughs> 
but otherwise weren't making a lot of progress. Just before Christmas, uh, I went down to Tony's office to ask him something, and rather unusually, the door was shut. So I knocked, and Tony said, come in. Put my head round the door. Ah, come in, Jocelyn, and shut the door. So I went in and shut the door. And there was Tony, there was the professor who was the head of the group, and there was another senior academic who was um, an editor of one of the scientific journals. And there was a discussion going on that I think I should have been part of right from the beginning. How do we publish this? We've now done most of the tests we can think of doing on this thing. We'll carry on, but I don't think we're going to get much new information. We really ought to be publishing it. But no journal editor, in fact, no reputable scientist, is going to believe a paper saying, hey, we found a funny thing. You know, they say you're just bad scientists and you don't understand your equipment. So how do we publish? And I didn't solve it. They didn't solve it. We didn't solve it that night. And I went home from work really rather cross with these little green men who decided to use my telescope and my frequency to signal to planet Earth. And here am I. My money's running out in six months. Would they, would they just go away? Came in that night to do a bit more a bit more analysis of chart paper. Um, it's just before Christmas break. I'm going back to Northern Ireland with my boyfriend to announce our engagement. Um, okay, I can do this work tonight, but then I've got to stop and travel early tomorrow morning. And looking at data from another bit of sky, uh, for the astronomers in the audience, uh, it was a bit of sky that was really wrecked because there's a very strong radio source in the Northern Hemisphere called Cassiopeia A. It's so strong you can see it through the back of the telescope when it's low on the northern horizon. It's 5 to 10. The janitor locks up at 10 o'clock. I can be locked in or locked out. I've got to be locked out if I'm going to go and announce my engagement. Right. Find that box. Throw the charts out on the paper. Line them up. Might be there. No, mess, mess, mess. Hopeless, hopeless. Hmm, wonder. Mess, mess, useless, rubbish. And here's tonight, which is actually quite clear. But they do line up. Oh, that bit of sky is seen by the telescope at two o'clock in the morning. I fear I've got to be there. Throw the charts on the paper. Run out of the laboratory as the janitor is locking the doors behind me. Go out to the observatory at two o'clock in the morning and it's perishing cold. And in cold weather, something was wrong with the telescope and it wouldn't work full blast. So I'm flicking switches and I'm cursing it and I'm breathing it and I'm thumping it. And I get it to work for five minutes. It's the right five minutes and it's the right setting. And in comes pulse, 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 pulse. The first one had a pulse period of one and a third seconds. This had a period of one and a quarter seconds. There aren't two lots of little green men trying to signal to planet Earth using this crazy frequency. This has to be some kind of new star. I left a message for Tony, went off to Ireland with my boyfriend, announced our engagement, had a great holiday. Tony kept the survey running, 
which means he put ink in the inkwells and paper in the charts and piled the stuff on my desk. And I come back and Tony's in a meeting, but there's this great pile of charts on my desk. So I'm sitting down to do some of this chart analysis, working my way through. Oh, yeah, which one's that? It's not my it's not either. It's a third. Wow. I haven't had too much alcohol, have I, at Christmas? <laughs> okay, I'm near the end of this chart. I'll go to the end and then I'll come back and, and work on this one. So move it along. What? Two of them? A meter apart? Come on. At that point, Tony appears, stands at the end of the desk. Look, look, look. Oh, Happy New Year, Tony. Thank you for keeping the survey running. Look at this. Look at this. Oh, how many more have you missed? Go back through all your old records. I went back through all the old records. I didn't find any more candidates. And we confirmed those two in the next few weeks. So we ultimately had four. We announced it in a paper in Nature. I think the editor of Nature reviewed the paper himself. He certainly turned it around in about two weeks. I sat next to him at a dinner near the end of his life, and I said to him, did you review that paper yourself? And he'd only smile at me. Um, we were very naive. A journalist picked up on it and said, did we ever consider it was Little Green Men? And we said, yes, we did, but of course we dismissed it. And the little green men story stuck. And then they discovered that there was a young woman involved. And at that point in British society, young women were basically sex objects. Page three, scantily dressed. And the typical kind of interview would go, they'd ask Tony about the astrophysical significance, and they'd ask me the human interest questions. So what were my vital statistics? How many boyfriends did I have? Would I describe myself as brunette or blonde? No other colours were allowed. And the photographers would say, could I undo some buttons, please? It was horrible. It still makes me shudder. But that was the way women were treated. And as a young grad student who hasn't yet written her thesis, got her PhD and the money's running out, I can't afford to make too many waves. So I had to kind of tolerated. The name Pulsar was created by one of the correspondents from the Daily Telegraph, Anthony Michaelis, who asked us what we were going to call these things. And we thought about this, so we said firmly, pulsating radio sources. We'd had a very careful debate. Are these pulsating radio sources or pulsed d radio sources? Pulsed implies an agency little green men. So they were pulsating. But Auntie Michaelis said, no, no, a short name. What about Pulsar? By analogous with Quasar. And the name has stuck. And it's a good name. So Pulsars, they're small, as you know, they rotate, they sweep a beam of radio waves around the sky. And if the beam shines in our face, we see a pulse. They're very small. 
They're very dense. They're rich in a particle called neutrons. So they're also known as neutron stars. Because they're small and heavy, they have very strong gravitational fields. They also have very strong electric and magnetic fields. And we believe they're formed in the explosion that ends the life of a big star. They're the core of the star that collapses as part of the explosion. And they're primarily observed as these pulsed radio-emitting sources. They're seen mainly in the radio, just one or two in the visible, some in the X-rays, some in the gamma rays. We now know over 3,000, but there's only about 20 of them that you can see in the optical. There's about 100 in the X-ray and rather surprisingly more in the gamma rays. About 10% of them are twinned with another star. One is in a triple system and there's a few of them that have planets. And that's another whole story. And there might be 100,000 of them in the galaxy. We believe they're formed in the explosion of a big star, um, 10, 20 times the mass of our sun. At the end of its life, it does a dramatic explosion. Most of the material gets kicked out. The core collapses and forms one of these very um, dense stars. So one of the most famous of these was in the Southern Hemisphere in the Large Magellanic Cloud in 1987. And we've kind of assumed that in the core of this particular star, there is one of these pulsars. We haven't ever actually seen something pulsing in the core of that one. So there may still be some questions we have to sort out. One of the most famous objects is in the Northern Hemisphere. It's the Crab Nebula. Um, it was a star that was seen to explode in 1054 AD. And for a long time, there were questions about what keeps this nebula shining? It ought to be dimming. 1054 was a wee while ago. Well, it turns out there's a pulsar right in the middle. The remains, the core of the star that exploded. And the pulsar is keeping the whole nebula energized. So typically these things are a few million, 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 million tons. But they have a radius of only 10 kilometers. They are really dense. So their average density is like the density of the, of the atom. And we believe they're rich in neutrons, so they're also known as neutron stars. To give you some sense of what that density means, take a sewing thimble. Take the population of the globe, 7 billion people plus. Jam those people one by one into the thimble. And when you've got all 7 billion into the thimble, it weighs the same as if it was full of stuff from one of these stars. They are really, really dense with some really exotic physics. Um, they've got strong gravity. They've got tidal effects. And the physics in the middle is very complex and very interesting. Because they've got a lot of material in a small volume, there's strong gravity, and that produces several effects. One is that it bends light, so that if I was standing on one of these stars, because light bends, I could see 20 or 30 degrees over the horizon, and I could see about two-thirds of the star's surface from where I stood. 
The strong gravity also affects light. It redshifts it. So if there were little green men on one of these stars, to us they'd look like little red men. And it also slows clocks, the gravity. Uh, there's also a strong gradient of gravity. So if you're coming in to land on one of these stars, and let's say you land first, because feet first, the ladylike way, as you come in to land, your body gets stretched long and thin. And more than that, it gets overstretched. It starts getting pulled apart. So first of all, your feet get pulled off, land on the neutron star, and then your shins and so on. So don't go visit a pulsar. <laughs> there's a very strong magnetic field. There's a very strong electric field. And in fact, the electromagnetic forces are way, way stronger than gravity one. So don't take your credit cards either. And they're very good timekeepers. They keep spinning. Because when you get something that heavy spinning, it's the devil's own job to make it change. So they're really good clocks going tick, 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 tick. And we've been using them to check out bits of Einstein's theory of relativity. Of course, they set some records. At the center of one of these objects, the pressure is that number of times the atmospheric pressure here on Earth. The fastest known pulsar, this is its number. It has a period of this number of milliseconds, thousands of a second. And look how accurately it's measured. And not all of that is experimental error. It is very gradually slowing. That seven's probably now become an eight. The first planets discovered beyond the solar system were planets around a pulsar. This technicolor thing is the pulsar, and there's one, two, three. We now know of a tiny fourth one as well. And the roundest known thing in the universe is the orbit of a particular pulsar around another star. It's round to five millionths of a meter. That's a tenth the width of a human hair whereas the orbit is over half a million kilometers. For those of you into conics, the eccentricity is about 10 to the minus 7. It's a pretty good circle. And if something falls onto the surface of one of these stars, it hits the deck, traveling at half the speed of light. I'm going on a bit long. I'm going on far too long. Can I have a few more minutes? Uh, one of the interesting things about having discovered pulsars is every so often somebody comes up to me at a conference and says, you know, I nearly discovered pulsars and tells you a story. And there are some thought-provoking stories. The earliest one dates from 1957, 10 years before we discovered pulsars. It's open night at an observatory in Texas and... Um, there's a young student just graduated called Elliot Moore who's working there for the summer. And he tells this story. He became an astrophysicist and, and a lecturer himself. The telescope is pointed at the Crab Nebula and that star in the middle of Crab Nebula that we now know is the pulsar. And a young woman steps up to the telescope and says, that star's flashing. And the night assistant starts to explain about scintillation and she stops him. She says, no. 
I hold an airplane pilot's license. This is 1957 and this young woman flies planes. She says, my job is to deliver newly built planes from the manufacturer to the customer. I fly at night. I know about the night sky. I know about the twinkling and scintillation. That stars flashing. Now, that particular pulsar flashes at 30 times a second, which is pretty fast. Is there anybody here who was brought up in Canada? Were you there when the mains frequency was 30 hertz? Didn't know. Originally, the Canadian mains power supply was at 30 hertz. And a number of people found they could see the lights flashing and the television flashing. And they ultimately changed to either 50 or 60. I can't remember which. But there are some people who can see 30 hertz flashes. They tend to be female. They tend to be young. The sharpshooters have done some research on, on acuity. We think it quite likely that she saw that star flashing. But nobody followed up. And the message Elliot Moore tells everybody, always follow up anomalies. But nobody did. And so apart from him telling this story to each generation of students, it's unknown. Ah, what have I done? Okay. Um, the next story is Australian and fairly recent. Um, 2007, astronomers at the ATNF get an email from a gentleman in the USA called Charles Schisler. He says he used to work for the United States Air Force at an early warning station in Alaska, looking for ballistic missiles coming in. It's fairly quiet. He's allowed to play around with the equipment when it seems quiet. And he uses it, the receivers, to look at the sky. And he finds some fluctuating sources. Bless whatever college he went to, he took an astronomy course. He knows about right ascension and declination, which is kind of the latitude and longitude on the sky. And he notes the latitude and longitude of these variable sources. He's just found the online Pulsar catalogue, which is here in Australia. And he's checked against his list of pulsing sources, and several of them are in it. You did a lot of work with him. Um, I think you think he probably saw something. Yeah. Yeah. But because it was classified, he wasn't allowed to publish. But thank goodness he hung on to that tiny bit of paper where he wrote down the right ascension and declination. He probably shouldn't have taken it away with him, but he did. And the fourth example involves Sue Simpkin, um, who was originally Canadian, and remembers the 30 hertz when the lights and the television flashed. She's one of the people who can see that. She's doing ultraviolet spectroscopy at this stage. She's going observing, and a Dutch astronomer, uh, Lo, asks her to, Lo Vulture, asks her to take a spectrum of that funny star in the middle of the Crab Nebula. She does. She says the spectrum of the nebula is great, the spectrum of the star is dull. But as she's observing, she sees these waves going out. Lou says, no, you didn't. You couldn't have. But when the pulsar is announced, he's man enough to say to her, you probably saw it. 
but it wasn't followed up. And there's one example from radio astronomy where I'm not going to name the names because the person involved was always rather embarrassed about this. Making a survey of the radio sky uh, using big telescopes. Uh, they're in their last week of observing. They've got some gaps, you know, that they've got to fill in and tidying up. Their pre-computers are using chart recorders. And one of the chart recorders has a pen that kind of sticks a bit and then jumps and carries on and occasionally sticks. And about three o'clock in the morning, that pen recorder starts going. Chick, 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 chick. And the observer says, oh, damn, that pen recorder thumps it, which is the way you solve many things. And it stopped going chick, chick, chick and went back to, back to normal. And he said, oh, good put on his coat and went home to bed and didn't write anything in the logbook. Actually, it wasn't the pen recorder sticking. It was picking up a pulsar. Pulse, 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 pulse. But because he hadn't written anything in the logbook, they couldn't claim prior. So, final little bit. I had my own telescope. And I made it my job to really understand how that telescope worked and also the receiver. I was a graduate student. I had time and space to focus on this, to follow things up. I was also suffering from imposter syndrome, so I was being stupidly conscientious. But this was one of the first surveys to run with this short time constant to follow variable things. It's not an optimum frequency for pulsars, and the first source was not one of the strongest. But we did have a good address, and that helps if you're going to publish something crazy. Interestingly, of course, it was not one of the objectives of the program. And in Britain, fairly soon after, your research was assessed on how well you'd met your objectives. This couldn't have been one of the objectives. We didn't know they existed. So maybe we'd have missed out on that. And very relevant for today, where we're beginning to deal with masses of data, if we had computerized the search somehow, would we have programmed the computer to look for anything as unexpected as this? Thank you for your interest. Thank you for your attention. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.